Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Racist beliefs are often taught. Tim Parrish grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where Jim Crow was everywhere and saying the N-word was common in his house. But Parrish says at some point he realized he had to take responsibility for the person he was becoming, no matter his upbringing. The creative writing professor at Southern Connecticut State University tells his story in his memoir, Fear and What Follows, The Violent Education of a Christian Racist. We talk with Parrish coming up. First, tomorrow is the first gubernatorial debate since the primary. But the Republican candidate won't be participating. Now, the moderator of the debate is Connecticut Public Radio's John Dankosky, host of The Wheelhouse. And next, he joins me now with more. Hi, John. Hi there, Lucy. And want to let our listeners know they can join the conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So tell us about the lineup, so to speak, tomorrow and, and who won't be there. Interesting. Yeah. So the first debate of this general election season is going to take place, and it's being sponsored by the Connecticut Conference of Independent Colleges, uh, the Connecticut Mirror, and also WFSB-TV, along with Connecticut Public Radio. We've been working on this for some time, and we extended invitations to the folks who are going to be on the ballot. And I'll explain that more in just a moment. Um, Bob Stefanowski, who is the nominee for uh, governor for the Republican Party, has declined our invitation. Um, We're still perhaps hopeful he may show up, but that would have to happen really, really soon, uh, letting us know. Ned Lamont, of course, the Democratic nominee, said a long time ago he was going to do that. There's a little bit of gamesmanship, actually. Ned Lamont challenged Bob Stefanowski to take part in this debate. Uh, I somewhat thought that uh, his direct challenge maybe is why Stefanowski Mm -hmm. said he wasn't going to take part. The thing we heard from the Republicans' uh, campaign was, It's really soon after the primary, and it's really soon after Labor Day. They're not going to get a big audience. They're not going to maybe be able to be prepared for this uh, quite so soon. He has agreed to take part in either four or five other debates. It's a little unclear, but they've definitely locked down four other debates. So who's going to be there with Ned? Is it just going to be Ned by himself? No, it would actually be Oz Griebel, uh, who has already qualified to be on the ballot as a petitioning candidate. Uh, Oz Griebel, many people know in the state, uh, certainly in the greater Hartford area. Uh, He's been a part of business councils. He's been uh, a Republican for quite some time. And he's changed his affiliation to become more of a centrist. He's running a petitioning campaign, and he got the necessary 7,500 signatures to get on the ballot as of the time that we decided to do this. So he's going to be on stage with Ned Lamont. Now, there's also a couple of other candidates that are hoping to have enough signatures to be on the ballot. So what's the latest with them, John? Yeah, so 7,500 is the is the total that you need to get to. And actually, tomorrow, the day of our debate, is the deadline for the Secretary of State's office to have all the signatures in and to have them counted up. As we said, Oz Griebel was already confirmed as of last week to have gotten the 7,500 signatures. There's a few other people who are very, very close. Rod Hanscom, who I've met, who's running as a libertarian. Uh, He's a guy in the heating and cooling industry. Uh, He took part in an environmental forum that I hosted earlier this year. He's a fairly traditional libertarian candidate. He is at around 7,400 ballot signatures in so far. I'm sorry, signatures uh, on the petitions in so far in order to get on the ballot. 
So it seems likely that he'll be there. There's another gentleman named Mark Stuart Greenstein, who is, I believe, part of the Amigo Constitution Party. He calls himself a Democrat, but a Democrat who uh, wants to uphold the Constitution. He, like a lot of people on the ballot this time around, or potentially on the ballot, wants to get rid of the income tax. It seems as though, Lucy, the biggest thing that he wants to do is bring back the Hartford Whalers. He says he actually wouldn't stand for re-election if he wasn't able to get the Hartford Whalers to come back to the city. He also has a very large part of uh, his website devoted to athletics. He says that he'll, he'll opine about Tom Brady if you'd ask him about that. So I, I don't know if maybe you'll get a chance. So potentially five candidates could be on the ballot, four of them possibly at this debate tomorrow night. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Bob Stefanowski because this is someone that uh, a lot of people don't know about him. He's someone that seems like he's the outsider. He he uh, he skipped the GOP convention. He petitioned his way onto the ballot. Is it a smart move uh, to not be getting as much face time, so to speak, on television for these debates? Well, this is what's interesting, Lucy, and a lot of people uh, who have followed the Stefanowski campaign very closely have said, just look at the results. Much like Donald Trump turned everything on its head when he ran the campaign that he ran, Bob Stefanowski has done nothing but uh, succeed in his attempt to get the nomination by being completely unconventional. He doesn't take part in the convention. He gets on television much earlier with his ads and also online ads than any other candidate, meaning that he was getting name recognition, face recognition, more so than the other candidates on the Republican side very, very early on. He would play coy about whether or not he was going to take part in debates uh, leading up to the primary. He did take part in some, but he also didn't take part in others. And people who've watched the campaign so far say, well, look at the results. He ran clearly the best campaign. He fairly decisively took the nomination. Why would he change anything now just because he's the Republican nominee? The big difference, of course, is always that when you're running in a primary, you're able to run more toward the base of the party. And when you get into a general election, you have to appeal to a much wider uh, group of people. In Connecticut, it's really interesting who that group of people is. The largest number of voters in the state is unaffiliated not independent, which we can get to in a moment, but unaffiliated. The second largest group by far is Democrats. And the third, much smaller group is Republicans. Republicans traditionally turn out in August for a primary. They're more motivated voters. And a lot of them will probably turn out in November as well. But it's that huge block of unaffiliated that you have to appeal to. And so you can't run a hard right campaign and have ads with Donald Trump in them and just put your ads on Fox News if you're going to appeal to a large segment of that population. And that's sort of the uphill climb that Bob Stefanowski faces. This is where we live in studio with me, John Dankosky, host of The Wheelhouse and next on Connecticut Public Radio, also executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. John's going to be moderating uh, the first debate in the general election as we uh, look towards Election Day. Just a couple of months away, it's tomorrow night. We're actually going to be airing it also on our air, John. That's right. And it's it's coming from uh, University of St. Joseph. And again, just these two candidates on stage as of right now, Oz Griebel and Ned Lamont, we're hopeful that Bob Stefanowski could show up. We we don't have invitations out to these other candidates that we've we've talked to in part because they've not qualified for the ballot. By you know Thursday morning, we might know that they are on the ballot for November. 
Now, when we uh, look at this election, you mentioned the independent party. Uh, Bob Stefanowski has their endorsement. So if we're looking at the potential ballot come November, let's talk about um, in the past uh, gubernatorial elections, how that can um, you know make an impact for candidates who are across endorsed. Well, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is a lot of people in the state are unaffiliated voters. We don't know the raw numbers of people who are trying to be unaffiliated, but actually registered with the independent party or the other way around. The word independent sounds like you're not affiliated with either party, but there's actually a, a ballot line for the independent party, which has swung back and forth between being more of a liberal party or more of a conservative party. Right now, it's much more of a conservative party. Here's the here's the breakdown, Lucy, and why it's so fascinating. Back in 2010, which, as you know, was a very tight election, maybe 6,000 votes separated Dan Malloy, uh, who eventually won, and his Republican challenger, Tom Foley. Dan Malloy was cross-endorsed by the Working Families Party, a, a, a liberal-leaning organization that puts up actual candidates in municipal elections, but tends to cross-endorse Democrats at the top of the ticket. Dan Malloy got about 26,000 votes from working families to pad his total uh, of those votes coming from Democrats. Tom Marsh, who is an actual candidate from the independent party, was on the ballot line there, and he got about 17,000, 18,000 votes. That meant that Tom Foley didn't get those votes, and that's the margin right there. Fast forward to the last election, 2014. The independent party is like, well, we want to have a little bit more of an impact. They cross-endorse Foley, and that actually does get him 22,000, 23,000 votes uh, during that election. Still didn't help him overcome the the Malloy surge that year, in which he won by a little bit more of a, a, a distance than he did the last time around. But again, a very close election. In both elections, 2010 and 2014, you had third-party candidates. Joe Visconti, um, much like Oz Griebel this time around, petitioned himself on, got about 11,000 votes uh, last time. That didn't really make up the entire margin, but it did take votes away from Tom Foley, the Republican. So given what you said, this race is a toss-up. It feels like a toss-up. We've got a little bit of polling so far, just two polls from, uh, from uh, Sacred Heart University. And the Hearst Media Group, uh, another poll, of course, from Quinnipiac, which traditionally does a lot of polling. They've done slightly less polling during this year, but they promise that they will be doing more. The Quinnipiac poll shows a healthier lead for Ned Lamont. The SHU poll shows that it's a little bit tighter. That having been said, a, a tight race is going to really benefit a Ned Lamont who's going to have a little bit more money to spend, certainly not have the challengers who are coming from the right that uh, Bob Stefanowski will have. And Ned Lamont's just going to have more money. He's going to be able to have more money coming in. Bob Stefanowski has benefited from a super PAC uh, in his name and probably more money coming from the Republican Governors Association if they feel like he is a candidate, they'll actually be able to take back the state house in Connecticut. But Ned Lamont seems to have advantages both in the early polling and also in his ability to, to raise money. But again, we can't count out Stefanowski, who ran a really good campaign in the Republican primary. And there's a, a new story out from the Connecticut Mirror that uh, Bob Stefanowski uh, most likely used up all of the money for the, the primary election. And now he's uh, going out trying to get more donors. And that can be a challenge for someone who's self-funded. Well, yeah. And he's trying to do a few things. He's trying to get more donors. He's trying to meet people who don't know who he is. As we said, this huge unaffiliated block and maybe even disaffected Democrats, people who might want to vote for someone who's says he's going to take a lot of cost out of state government and someone who is going to uh, cut back on our income taxes. Well, 
that's a really hard hill to climb if you both have to continue to raise money while you're also getting your message out, while you're putting out ads that are attacking Ned Lamont, while you're putting out ads that are also telling people who Bob Stefanowski is. So there's a lot he has to accomplish in the next couple months. So, John, you gave us an idea of, of who's running, but let's talk more about the, the theme for tomorrow's debate. You're really going to drill down and ask these guys what their plans are for the economy. Yeah, it's interesting because the economy is obviously a broad uh, thing. And when we did an earlier debate in the Republican uh, primary, we we said, you know, just because it's about the economy, that doesn't mean we're just going to be talking about the state budget. I mean, the economy is people's ability to get jobs. It's businesses' ability to function and do better year on end. But it's also the ability of people to stay in the state after college or to afford a college education. So there's an awful lot that goes into the economy that's more than just the seemingly intractable billions of dollars of deficit that the that the state is in. We got to talk about that. But we want to talk about what the overall Connecticut economy is going look like after four years of Ned Lamont or, or Oz Griebel. Uh, we probably won't get the chance to hear from Bob Stefanowski tomorrow. That's too bad because uh, The Current had reported that um, Bob Stefanowski has said he's against the minimum wage. A few days later, he's now saying, leave it alone. I mean, this is something where uh, Ned Lamont supports raising to $15 an hour, and a lot of people are earning minimum wage in this state. They're, they're going to want to know what their future for a guy that's running for governor that's thinking that, you know, let's not mess with it. Well, I'll just say quickly, Lucy, that certainty is one thing that workers and businesses are going to expect out of whatever next governor, whatever next legislature comes down the pike. We've seen back and forth, are we going to have more income taxes, less income taxes? Are we going to have uh, more income taxes on millionaires? Are we going to hit up small businesses? A lot of people say, who runs small businesses, Lucy? I can't afford $15 an hour as a minimum wage. And so those specifics are some of the things that we'll get into. Can we afford a living wage for all Connecticut residents while we try to make businesses expand along the way? John Dankowski, host of The Wheelhouse, and next on Connecticut Public Radio, the first gubernatorial debate tomorrow. What time can they listen? It's going to be on at 7 o'clock tomorrow night here on WNPR. Thanks, John, for your time. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live. Coming up, we talk to a college professor at Southern Connecticut State University about his racist upbringing. What can we learn from Tim Parrish? More right after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. White supremacists are certainly a minority in this country, but their presence is nonetheless disturbing. Look no further than August, when white supremacists held a rally in Washington, D.C. The organizers were the same men who put together the rally in Charlottesville one year ago, where protester Heather Heyer was killed by a man who had embraced white supremacy and neo-Nazism. Tim Parrish knows firsthand what it means to be a racist. He grew up in Louisiana, where slurs and violence towards African-Americans was common. Parrish himself participated in racial violence as a teenager. In 2015, he wrote an essay about his actions and said at one time he, quote, drank from the same poison well as Dylan Roof, the man who killed nine African-Americans inside a church in Charleston, South Carolina. In recent years, he's shared his story to remind people it's possible to step away from hate. But that path isn't always easy. Parrish tells his story in his memoir, Fear and What Follows, The Violent Education of a Christian Racist. Tim Parrish joins me now in studio. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. I guess we'll start off by getting to know you, Tim. And um, from your accent, we know you're not a Yankee, but a Southerner. (laughs) Tell me where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and my parents were from Mississippi. And then I got my grad degree and taught in Alabama. So when I moved up here, nobody could understand a word I was saying because my draw was a lot heavier. But I, I was born in 58, 
and Jim Crow was still alive and well in Baton Rouge. Uh, my father worked in a chemical plant. My mother worked in a department store, so we were working-class people. And we lived probably a mile and a half from the Mississippi River and the line of petrochemical plants. So from my uh, bedroom window, I could see the flare stacks at night, which kind of gave it a nice apocalyptic feel that fit in with our Southern Baptist church. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's a, it was a place where white flight was beginning to happen when I was uh, probably 10 or 11 years old. So African-Americans were moving into our neighborhood. It was natural desegregation, and that led to a lot of the racial violence on my own uh, conflicts and bad behavior that are detailed in the book. Let's back up a little. You mentioned you grew up in Jim Crow South. So uh, many of us uh, have read about Jim Crow South, but may not have experienced Mm -hmm. it. So when you say that, what do you mean? What did you see and hear as a child? Right. Um, Well, outside Jim Crow, the the N-word was everywhere. That was the word that we used to describe black people um, all the time. And our church, our Southern Baptist Church, was very racist, too. So there was a pretty toxic racist atmosphere all over. Uh, Jim Crow was still happening until I was about five years old. But I vividly remember uh, segregated water fountains and whites-only bathrooms. And crazily enough, when I was in a small town in Louisiana, I still saw that in 1984. Mm. And so when you were growing up, uh, you mentioned that uh, white flight also started to happen. So where were uh, African-Americans segregated? When you think of Baton Rouge, mm-hmm. where did they live and where did you live? Right. Well, they, you know, it was, it was a patchwork in some ways. We all lived on uh, literally the other side of the tracks in some ways uh, in the working class part of town. But they uh, were moving from the north. They were farther north of Baton Rouge. And... Uh, they were just naturally expanding as the population expanded. And so the the panic really started in the white community when the uh, African-Americans started moving out of a neighborhood called Dixie. So that started to really happen about 1969 or ni- 1970. And it was then uh, the whites were just on this kind of close uh, end of times watch for uh, for sale signs popping up. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, white flight, because, you know, if institutional racism, which has denied African-Americans from getting the same mortgages and the same opportunities pretty much forever in the United States, the whites are saying, well, when blacks move into this neighborhood, the property values are going to drop, the crime is going to go up, all of those things. And so they make the property values drop uh, by moving out, taking the capital, taking this kind of stability out. But for the for the whites who were unable to move out and while the African-Americans were moving in, I imagine that created quite a tension. It did. Um, and again, like the title of the book, I mean, fear underlay all of it. But we didn't actually have any African-Americans in our neighborhood until I was uh, on our street, I should say, until I was in the uh, 12th grade. And a black family moved in. I actually knew their son. His name was Tim. Uh my father didn't go crazy, which was had been the whole lead up my entire life. They were coming, the invaders, then we, you know, family moved on our street. Nothing happened. And in fact, I would have, Tim was the only African-American kid I knew who liked heavy metal. So when my parents were gone, I would have Tim in the house and we'd listen to Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and stuff. So tell me more about your relationship with your parents and what their views were of African-Americans. I'm assuming this was taught to them by their parents. Yes. 
And I do want to say, though, the whole, the you know, the old line, well, they grew up in a different time, I don't, that means very little to me after a certain point. Because I grew up in a different time, too, and I grew up in an environment where racism was encouraged, it was enacted, it was all around me, and I hope I've escaped some of it. But my father was, uh, he grew up uh, a farmer in, during the Depression uh, and served in World War II, was on the, in the first fleet that went into Nagasaki Bay after the bomb. So he was sort of a mythic figure to me in a lot of ways. He was also really temperamental. He'd have mood swings, and there was, when, they, when he went to the darker side, incredibly angry, hard to read. My mother was, uh, I think she tried to, um, you know, enact Christianity and Jesus's teachings more than my father did. And we were very close and had this kind of bond. She understood me and kind of approved of me as a creative person, which was not widely accepted in a macho culture. And I was much more encouraged to be an athlete and then to, you know, be a guy who could fight and handle himself on the street. So my mother, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, sort of saved my spirit. But I, ha- I had a close relationship with her until the time she died. Uh, and I also I had uh, a very rough relationship with my father, but we finally uh, came to an understanding uh, before he died, and actually after my mother died in 1989, he and I began to negotiate the fact that uh, he was going to immerse himself in Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and I wasn't, and when I was at his house, he had to turn it down and also change what the language he used. But growing up, this is when you um, we were talking earlier about the N word. This is something that both your parents uh, used often in the house. Absolutely, yeah, it really was about the only word. My mother at times showed some uh, reticence to use it. I could tell. And I think she could see the obvious contradictions coming out of church. Racism is not segregated to um, just one region of our country, right? And many of us know people in our lives, may even have a relative who uh, say racist things or have racist beliefs. But because they are close with us, uh, sometimes we tend to want to ignore the bad and maybe the more of the good outweighs the bad. Is that how you saw your relationship with your parents? Eventually, yeah. Um, Although my father and I had it out a lot. I mean, down to the, the sort of archetypal facing off in the yard and deciding are we going to have a fist fight or not over these differences. I think at that time a lot of the differences were just that I was a, a long-haired teenager and he wasn't. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was a, it's a lifelong struggle too uh, because, uh, again, my father was incredibly loving. He understood what I was doing. He didn't approve of it. He would talk badly to people behind my back about how I was a – you know, a lefty college professor who let out family secrets. But when I would visit him, and I visited him quite often, he managed to show me infinite amounts of love and understanding. We just steered clear of things. But it was a hard thing for me to watch my father die and not overcome um, that kind of really horrible darkness that existed in him. And in fact, I think the way the way a lot of older people do in, embrace it more fully and almost become a caricature in some ways as a racist. Mm-hmm. And uh, So, yeah, it was, it was a tricky relationship. 
This is where we live. In the studio with me is Tim Parrish. He's professor of creative writing at Southern Connecticut State University. Today we're talking with him about a, one of the three books he's written. It's called Fear and What Follows, The Violent Education of a Christian Racist. Uh, when we look at the, the title, you're talking about yourself. Yeah, I am. So we were talking about some of the demographic changes that were going on in your community of Baton Rouge, um, the integration, the white flight, uh, but you were also raised in the Southern Baptist Church. So walk us through a little bit of, again, the contradictions of like what you were learning, what scripture says, and then what you were seeing within your church community about how they viewed other people, blacks in your community. Right. When I was very young, about four years old, uh, we were attending the Southern Baptist Church about three blocks from our house, and it was a very far right-wing church. But the pastor there said that um, he wanted to hold a vote about whether or not we would allow African Americans to come in if they arrived. Now, there was a a distant chance at that point that maybe someday an African American would show up at the door. But it was still probably at least a decade or so away before anybody had that possibility. Well, my father saw that as a liberal move. So we started driving 20 miles out of town every Sunday to go to another church that was a pretty hardcore rural church. Um, in Sunday school, I was immersed in you know the best of Jesus' teachings. We sang Jesus Loves the Little Children out of a hymnal that had Uh, children on the front of all different colors. So I was getting this message in there, oh, you know, Jesus is a cool dude. He likes everybody. So I was already picking up on that because when I went into the main church, it was clear that was not the case. And there was always uh, this, this fear in there of any other. When it really came to a head, is when they held they they held the same vote to allow African Americans in the church out there, but that was a much different situation because there was no chance any African Americans were going to come, and it was kind of a purity test. But we had another of those votes, and I agonized over it, and I was actually one of two people in the church who voted to allow African Americans in. I wasn't scolded or reprimanded, but I was I got a talking to by deacons and the the pastor, and then my parents in a kind of oblique way, letting me know how that sort of wasn't acceptable. And in addition to just setting this deep conflict and what message am I getting here uh, from a supposedly Christian church, it also, I think, let me know boldly for the first time that I had to be a racist, really, in order to fit into that culture. Uh, You... uh were then going into your teenage years a few la- years later. So even though you had uh, misgivings about um, you know how African Americans were viewed or treated or even spoken about, um, you knew that there was a, a certain place that you had to, to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you were a teenager, uh, you write in your book that you fell in with a, a violent crowd and the these teenagers had racist beliefs. And why did that happen? Can you walk us through that? Sure. Well, underlying it was this idea that I wanted to be um, a part of the of macho culture. I wanted to fit in to be accepted more by my father and the people around me in this, this racist environment. But ironically, what eventually led to my kind of getting under the sway of this charismatic racist was I was attacked by a kid, a white kid in my neighborhood, and the fight ended with him pulling a knife on me, and then somebody 
pulled him away. The guy who pulled him away then was this older criminal in our neighborhood who had this kind of terrifying reputation, and he started stalking me. And needless to say, at 13, I was terrified. Every day I walked to school, I didn't know if I was going to get in another near-fatal fight or if I was going to be stalked by this guy. And so as life is perverse, this guy moved onto my street in the book he's called Dyer. He was the uh, he was kind of a superhuman fighter, uh, hardcore racist, really funny, really charismatic. All the women wanted him. He was also, and this is kind of the crucial point, he was the only guy in the world that the sociopath who'd been following me feared. So I also thought that by allying myself with this violent racist, I was going to be protected from this guy who'd been stalking me. Mm. Well, when we're teenagers, we also want to be liked. We want to have friends. And this was someone that filled that role for you. Yeah, absolutely. Dyer was a master manipulator. And it, it took me a while to realize I was being indoctrinated in a way that I think was both calculated but also intuitive on his part. And he started making it clear if I didn't get involved in some of the, at that point, what were gang fights, although some of them were kind of going into riots with him, then uh, I wasn't living up. And I was, a, I was betraying this sort of larger code that blacks moving into our neighborhood and being in our school were kind of the vanguard of the end of white culture. So there was, there was definitely white supremacist language going on. And one huge fight at school, we had a true race riot at school. After that fight, David Duke came to our school and stood on the easement between the sidewalk and the street and uh, recruited my classmates for the Klan. And then the next night was going to have a big rally in our neighborhood. Well, Dyer, the racist guy, didn't like David Duke, ironically enough, because he saw him as a politician. So as a response to that, he got me and two of our uh, two of our friends to go out to start a fight. And this is probably the most despicable uh, night of my life. Uh, I, you know, it's just I don't think I can ever get over this. Um, we found some kids, some black kids, walking on the side of the street. We jumped out of the car, and I had brought a chain with me, and I was chasing this kid, and I think he was probably 12 or 13 years old. I was 15. And I finally got him uh, stopped, and I raised the chain. I was trying to hit him, but I was still sort of frozen. And then weirdly enough, Dyer uh, grabbed my arm. But when I looked in that kid's face, I saw myself as the terrorized 13-year-old. I didn't realize it right then, but I think at some level I said, that kid is me. I'm terrorizing that kid in the way I got terrorized. But that was sort of a turning point for me then because Dyer really said that night too, you've got to face off with black young men the way I do or you and I can't be together. And you also, you are a betrayer of your parents. Uh, and you are also giving license to African-Americans to take over our school. And then we got into the language of to give in to savagery. Now, this is a savage dude, but as many white supremacists uh, don't realize, they're projecting a lot of their own flaws on, mm -hmm. onto other people. So that was really a turning point. And after that, I did get more involved in violence. But during this time, weren't you also friends with black classmates because integration had happened? There was even a, a black teacher in your school? 
So how did you, uh, I guess, lead these two lives? That's a good question. And there was sort of a school life where I was an, an honor student and, you know, involved in clubs. And this outside life uh, where things were getting more and more out of control. And uh, one of my best friends at school was a guy I played basketball with. And Virgil, this black friend of mine, really helped me become a much better basketball player. So I was struggling all the time to reconcile how those two things were happening. And I'll just give you one big example. Uh, one of the first fights we were in after a, a football game on our campus, the next day Virgil told me, to, he said, your friend wanted to kill me last night. And he chased me down and caught me, and I turned around and I said, I'm Tim's friend. And he said, oh, well, I'll let you go then. But Virgil didn't say you got to stop hanging around with that guy. He did say, why are you hanging around with that guy? And at that point, I, I chose to stay with Dyer. But I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong all the time. My senior year, when we had one final fight at school after um, this racist acquaintance of mine had his car shot up. So the next morning, we had this we had a gang fight. Uh, I didn't fare too well, and it got my face flattened. But um, I was suspended for a week, and when I came back, um, another black uh, friend of mine, we weren't as close as Virgil and I were, um, against whom I competed to play quarterback in junior high and was now the first black quarterback at our school, which led him to get death threats. But he was working in the office when I came back after my suspension, and he stopped me, and he said, uh, he said, Tim, he said, what you're doing is not you. He said, fighting is not you. And I was like, okay, whatever, dude. And I walked into the, principal, the assistant principal's office, and when I came back out, he stepped in my way, and he said, this is not you. And I acted like it didn't matter to me, but it was a huge moment of courageousness for him, and it really set me straight, you know, as a fellow athlete, a guy I knew who'd been going through a lot. And... uh so he's the one who really stepped in. So tell me about uh, the turning point. When did it really get to a point where you thought, this is not me and I shouldn't be doing these things? Dyer's future brother-in-law lived across this kind of demarcating road where African-Americans moved across. So one night... Dyer started a fight. That's not the version he gave me. But this, his future brother-in-law got stabbed and almost died. And he told me he knew uh, about a week later where the guy who'd stabbed uh, Skeeter had gone. And he said, we're going to burn that house down. I just finally confronted him and said, I'm not going to murder people. So I don't care who they are. That, that was the breaking point because I just walk up to that kind of insanity. Uh, and I think it really shows how a person who's been raised well in a lot of ways, and I would say somebody, I was pretty smart, can really get caught in this almost unimaginable behavior and walk right up to the edge of doing something, uh, doing the worst thing you can do. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking with Tim Parrish, professor of creative writing at Southern Connecticut State University, about his memoir, Fear and What Follows, The Violent Education of a Christian Racist. Coming up, we'll ask Parrish why he thinks it's important to talk about his racist upbringing and get his insight on white supremacist movements today. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're talking with Tim Parrish, professor of creative writing at Southern Connecticut State University. Parrish is the author of three books, including Fear and What Follows, The Violent Education of a Christian Racist. It's a memoir that details Parrish's formative years growing up in a racist Southern Baptist community. Parrish fell in with a violent white supremacist crowd for much of his high school years. I asked Parrish why he decided it was important to write this difficult memoir, reliving a dark time in his life. Well, this stuff had been percolating in me for a long time, of course, and I tried to write a novel about it when I was much younger, and it just, it just didn't come together. I didn't have enough distance from it. But it was really when we were leading up to the, uh, the attack on Iraq and using uh, Christian ideology, quasi-Christian ide- ideology behind it and talking about crusades. I don't know if you remember Bush was using that word. So the underpinning seemed, it took me right back to some of the language and ideology when I was a kid. You know, we're going to go fight a holy war and we're, you know, ostensibly going to liberate people, but we're also going to take back Babylon. Mm-hmm. I'd heard that a lot of times in my church as a kid. So it just, everything just started to come up in me again, all these old feelings and these memories. And I said, okay, you've, you've got to finally deal with this. And uh, I thought it was, so it was, I was really just compelled to write this narrative. And it was, frankly, uh, a terrifying and horrible experience to write it. And it took me to uh, places of shame, um, of self-loathing that I almost didn't come out of. And it also really made me a toxic person bringing all this up again. And uh, But then it afforded me the opportunity, as I'm having today, to talk about things, not only my experience, but more uh, global issues of about racism and what white people are in denial about, what I think we need to do um, to to get better, that racism is not it's not a problem for people of color. It's a horrible issue and infliction on them. It's a white people's problem. And I wrote this book for white people. It was published in 2013, It was. Right? It was. So let's fast forward now into 2018 yeah. and, and what you're seeing and hearing uh, and reading uh, in the news, on the news. Uh, you describe yourself as a recovering racist. So when you look at uh, the conversations that we're having in this country about race, about division, um, what are some of the uh, parallels to what you experience, and how do we break out of this? Right. The last question is, is obviously the most difficult one. I've, I've become both more optimistic and more cynical about it, so we, we'll broach that in a second. The thing that people are surprised uh, to hear me say a lot of times is I don't find things that different in America. I just find 
that uh, Trump has given license to people's ids and tapped into deep insecurities and this kind of irrational sense of white grievance, especially among white men, like we've, we haven't been privileged or had access to, <laughs> to a lot of good things. And I say that as a, you know, a tall white guy. So um, I th- I'll, I'll just go back to 2008. And already I saw, you know, I saw the racist elements of the Bush administration and xenophobia, um, which were really enacted, uh, codified with the Patriot Act. Mm-hmm. But I was in Baton Rouge two days after Obama was elected the first time. And I was sitting in a restaurant just off LSU's campus, Louisiana State University's campus. And it was populated mostly by college students and professors. I heard the N-word around me and tables at this restaurant just off a college campus. My thought wasn't, oh my goodness, this is happening. My thought was, man, you are rude. And Obama has just made you people even crazier. So there was also, and that led quickly to the Tea Party, and all in Trump's first glaring racist act in, in, in the 21st century, which was the whole birther movement. And none of that was a surprise, too. But I also I thought, okay, Obama's been elected. Now they're all really afraid. So I've seen people becoming more and more emboldened. I just think now for a lot of people, uh, first of all, I think people tend to get really worried about the particular moment and sort of forget how rough things were in the recent past. But, um, you know, Trump is he's so open about it, and there's not even a dog whistle. I mean, we've got a gubernatorial candidate in Florida basically calling a man, an African-American gubernatorial candidate, a monkey. And no Republicans, not even ones I love, are saying anything about it. Uh, so anyway... I, I think the chaos of Trump and just the license he's giving and the the way he's fanning xenophobia and outright racism is different for people who haven't experienced it before or been quite as attuned to it as I have by circumstance. Uh, You mentioned when you were in uh, Louisiana a couple of days after – Barack Obama won the presidency uh, the first time. Uh, were you were you then because of your background? Were you skeptical of when people thought we were living in a post-racial America? It's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard, and I think too this is. I get more and more trouble talking about liberals, white liberals, than I do talking about to racists. Racists want to hurt me more, but the white liberals get more irritated. But you know, again, that was a salve for guilt in a way of not dealing with deep racist aspects, not only of our culture, but of almost all white people, especially of my generation, who benefit every day from white privilege and being able to isolate themselves from people of color unless they make a particular kind of choice to be involved with them. So I found that the most dangerous part of the racial landscape during Obama uh, is that white liberals were then saying, oh, there's, you know, we just eradicated racism. And 
I scoff at that whole notion. Let's talk about some of the things we've seen in the past uh, couple of years. There was the white supremacist mass shooting in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Uh, Much more recent now, this supremacist rally in Charlottesville, North Carolina, and this recent uh, white nationalist rally uh, in D.C. Uh, Oftentimes, we're seeing young white men that are being drawn uh, to this Mm -hmm. movement. Um, given your upbringing, given what uh, you have recovered from, so to speak, you know, how do you think we should address this time in our in our uh, society? Well, I first want to say, the, just talk about verb tense. I have not recovered. It's always going to be in me. All the worst impulses are still there, and I constantly have to deconstruct the impulses that come up in me. So, so give me an example. Okay, this is this is an example that appalls people, and you know. I think has caused some breaks from people with me is on a particularly bad day when I'm not, when I'm mad about anything and I'm, you know, I just, I'm tired or whatever. If a black person does something that fits my stereotype, the N word comes up in my head. I don't choose to have it. It's there. And then I just have to deconstruct it and become a rational person. So that's the most glaring example. And I still see, uh, I have to deprogram myself from stereotypes all the time. So I think that's the sort of thing that happens with me, and I still so not recovered. Um, I don't know what the solution is. We have people now, we're living in such different realities, and we've managed, a lot of us, to completely separate ourselves from various points of view and have become so overwhelmed by fear and that everything is going to be taken away, that our culture is going to be uh, eroded, uh, that there's almost no interaction. The optimistic thing I see is in my students and a lot of young, young people, which sadly means that a lot of this is not going to get better until I die and people <laughs> in my age group dies. <laughs> but... I think the changing demographic just makes diversity and interaction of cultures and people with difference more natural. And that really is the key to things changing if older people are not going to engage in conversations. Uh, before we end with you, Tim, you know, I wanted to find out, um, obviously, I had started this conversation mentioning that you're a native Southerner, but you've lived in Connecticut some time. Uh, and I'm just curious uh, if you want to spend some time talking about uh, what it's like living as a Southerner in the North. Again, where we have this idea that we are uh, more enlightened and uh, racism is not a problem in our backyards, but we know that that's uh, false. Right. Well, I do want to start, since you mentioned living in Connecticut, yesterday was the first day of my 25th year teaching at Southern Connecticut State. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And it's been one of the greatest experiences of my life. Uh, I I love that place. I love my students. Uh, We've had undergraduates going to great things as writers in our MA program, Julie Hill Barton. published a book called Dog Medicine a couple of years ago. She's one of our graduates, made the New York Times bestsellers list. Our Master of Fine Arts program uh, has amazing students coming out. It's an important anniversary for me, and I just want to say that Connecticut has been an amazing place for me, and Southern Connecticut State is a, is a university I think sometimes 
doesn't get the recognition, especially with that other college down the road. (laughs) But, you know, I identify, I'll always identify as a Southerner. I guess what it allows me to see in Connecticut is that even though people aren't maybe as strident and zealous and proud of their ignorance and racism, it's, it's deeply inculcated in people. And it comes out in ways I don't think they're aware of that Trump is also highlighted. But I think the Tea Party also started highlighting. And that's there's this deep sense that the other is taking away what especially white men have, although I'm not going to let white women off the hook either. Um, and they voted for Trump. They sure did. But I'd say up here, you know, it's, it's more coded uh, than it is in the South. And it's also heavily coded in the South at times. I had a lot, when I would do readings up here, a lot of the audience or members of every audience would say, isn't racism horrible in the South? Talk to us about racism in the South. And I would say, I will, but let's talk about racism in the North at first. Um, I think denial is the most insidious thing. And again, this cuts, this also goes into white liberals. But I, I've asked friends before, said, uh, said, okay, if you were looking for a house and you went into the most affluent neighborhood that you could afford, but there were mostly black and brown faces in that neighborhood, would you take that in as a factor that there's going to be more crime or there's going to be a cultural difference that makes you feel really uneasy? And I think most of the time the answer is yes, and that's something we all need to examine. And I don't speak from, as you can tell, from a high and mighty ground. I speak from a person who came from a despicable place and still has despicable thoughts. But I just think we have to examine that, and that's our mission. That was Tim Parrish, professor of creative writing at Southern Connecticut State University. He's the author of three books, Fear and What Follows, The Violent Education of a Christian Racist, a memoir, also a novel, The Jumper, and Red Stick Men, a short story collection set in his hometown of Baton Rouge. Learn more on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Kerman Baskoff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>